Welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Forget the property celebrities. We speak to relatable people with fascinating journeys, just like you. Hosted by Tej Singh, we bring you new stories, life-changing deals, and expert advice every week. I haven't recorded a podcast in ages, so it's quite nice to record this one. Welcome everybody to Tej Talks. Now, on today's show, someone called Seth, Seth Rehan. I've known him for about a year now, which is just crazy because, yeah, where has time gone? My forehead's definitely showing time has passed. Great. Um, so... We talk about, you know, Seth's quite early in his journey, a bit like Faith Locken, who was on the podcast a few weeks ago. And a lot of people really digged that episode. They were really liking how close her story was to their own. And I think with Seth's, you're really going to enjoy it. I I really enjoyed it. And I was like, wow, there's so much that sort of he's doing and so many mistakes and challenges and things he's learned from and got better at and interesting stats and figures and, you know, kind of shared all, that I just thought, you know what, I wish I'd heard him speaking in this episode a lot earlier in my journey. It would have probably given me a lot more patience. You know, we speak about, you know, pure hard work, which is often a key to success. You know, you can argue about efficient work, right work, you know, hard work gets success. Uh, And we, we kind of delve into the detail of what that means to him. We speak about his whys uh, and, you know, how far he's come in property and, and how he's learned from that and how, yeah, he, he maybe hasn't made that much money necessarily. I know he'll, he'll explain why, but what he has made is invaluable. And we also speak about how to price up refurbs. So, Seth, welcome to the Tej Talks podcast. Hey, Tej. How you doing, mate? I'm good. You know, I'm, I'm excited for this one because you're the second person on the podcast who I think is quite early in their property journey especially compared to some of the people I've had on the podcast and last time I did this you know with someone called Faith everyone was like wow we really liked that and we want to hear from people at kind of the real different stages of their journey so I think I think we first spoke was it like a year ago yeah I think it was I think it was on Facebook I was I was really starting out and Either I made a request of knowledge. I think, you know what it was? It was me asking how to raise personal brand on social media. And I just put up a post out there on a couple of groups. And I think you commented on one. And then from there, I just pressed add friend. And, and there we go. <laughs> I think we've just been talking since. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it feels about personal branding. And I think we spoke, I was driving up to Birmingham one time, I remember. And we were just chatting and I was giving you hopefully useful advice about I don't even remember. It was just like property stuff and how to start and all that kind of stuff. And and then I think, you know, I've, I've seen bits of your journey sort of since we've, we've caught up, we've met. And actually, when we met up in London, just for all the listeners, I'm 99% sure sitting behind you was Dion Dublin from Homes Under the Hammer, <laughs> which you didn't even... <laughs> and when I said that to I you, you were, you were like, Who, who's that? So um, anyone who watches the show, I'm pretty sure... He was there. I should have said hi to him. But moving on, um, I've kind of seen bits of your story and we've caught up. And actually, I, I kind of don't know what you've done for the past, I don't know, a few weeks or a few months. So this is going to be quite a nice catch up for me to actually see what you've been up to. And for the listeners, I think this podcast is going to focus on like your journey, uh, the challenges, the mistakes, and also the power of no, because you've had quite a few deals fall out of bed at quite potentially kind of late stages or stages where most of us would think, all oh, right, you know, deal sorted. So before we get into all that, what were you doing before property? And how did you kind of discover property as, okay, this is what I want to do now. This is what I want to do next. So I'm still doing the same thing. I'm an accountant by trade, um, work as a finance manager for a company in the middle of Manchester. Um, accountancy has been a passion for a while and still is a passion you know doesn't really go out of anywhere just probably tweaking things a little um full ambitions to still stay in work and 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 keep this as a journey that's on the side or a side hustle as you call it um started property really started about three four years ago you know i'd like to say i've been watching homes under the hammer for god knows how long just the standard sort of things but it really, really started to contextualize as, you know, small things. I started to earn some money. 
coming from an Asian background, mum and dad started to throw some bills on my head. Responsibilities started to sort of pick up a little bit. And lo and behold, I just realised that, you know, I'm not going to have a lot of money left for myself, you know, after the wages coming in. I'm working all these hours. Didn't really understand it at the time. I was quite, you know, quite young, 21 at the time. I'm 25 now. Um, and lo and behold, it was just one of them things, you know, suck it up and, and try and move on, make things better as opposed to complaining. Spoke to a couple of elder friends who I used to be sort of close to at the time, and, and they said the same. Sooner or later on the discovery to try and find out what to do, how to go about things. Property was was always a passion, um, was always something that I was always reading into. And then came across a couple of books on uh, Amazon, started reading, ordered one book, finished it within a week, next week ordered another book. And it just got to a stage from a guy who'd never used to read. And I, I, I still remember I used to buy Harry Potter books just to stack them on the bookshelf, but never used to read them. And then all of a sudden I was buying these books and lo and behold, I was reading and built, I've now got a nice little library of stuff that I can go through that I can dip into now and again. But where I'm getting with this is, is suddenly it just became a passion, just just got really, really sort of addicted to it. And as soon as I got into that, then it it just carried on going. I can't I can't really explain. Um fast forward to where I am now, okay, went to a couple of networking events and it's just, it's, I can't, I honestly cannot remember what I used to be like, you know, about two years ago. Um, a lot of people now, when I say, when I go and speak to, you know, relevant people, whether it be going into the barbers, whether it be going into a friend's house, oh, Mr. Property Investors walked in now, or, you know, small little digs like that. But but those those go back to those conversations that we used to have about personal brand and, and telling everybody what you, what you do. Um, and now I feel like I'm in a really good place in that sort of thing. So, so yeah, that's that's generally a brief story of where I'm up to. Okay. And I like that you said you don't even remember who you were two years ago. I think like that, that's a really interesting thing to say. And I hope it's made the listeners kind of think like I am. Because I'm thinking, hmm, actually, yeah, what was I like two years ago? Like, because you just, you don't sit back and think about that. But actually it shows you the, the big change you could have gone through. And you know, you didn't have to necessarily pay for a course or anything like that. You just educated yourself, invested in yourself, and and then you change as a person. So, um, you know, you had this this sort of mini journey of education. Now, you live in Manchester, so obviously, you know, it's a good investment area. You're close to Liverpool and, and other areas which are also good investment areas. So I think, you know, perhaps it was a bit easier for you than someone in London, for example, to, like, find an investment area to buy houses. But... How did you decide on your strategy? Because there's 101 different ways to do property. Like, like when you had the education, you network with people, you're like, right, I'm doing property now. How did you know where to start and what to do? I probably tried anything and everything at the start. It was, you know, the one of the more common mistakes um, where you think suddenly you have a brainwave, I'm going to do rent to rent today. And then you go and try it, you go and network with people you go and hear a lot of negativity about it you hear a lot of positives about it and then I kept every single thing I was doing whenever I was asking people if they were in my position would they do it all I was all I would hear is no so it was rent to rent at first then you went to service accommodation um, and then where else did it go to it went to HMO um, different things went on from there and then all of a sudden I was just left with buy to let at the start, um, I already had two single investments. This was with friends um, that were really, really badly bought, but performing well, but just with no education. They were just there. We, we paid over asking price. We got them. And now it's specifically sourced, working with investors and JVing with people. But I guess... Uh, when it came to strategy, as opposed to picking a strategy, I knew the area that I wanted to focus on was my own home patch. So it's three boroughs. It's northeast Manchester, Rochdale, Oldham and Tameside. And then it was trying to figure out what worked in them areas. And it was just it was buy to let all day long. Now I'm dabbling in a little bit of HMO. I've got a HMO development underway. 
it's about a week away from the refurb being completed, get that furnished, getting the keys to the next project, hopefully this Friday, maybe next week. So that's the second HMO that will be going up and a lot more deals in the pipeline, a couple of portfolios that I'm currently sort of going back and forth with on agents, but everything is down the JV route. Don't come from a family that has a lot of money. Certainly don't come from, you know, uh, uh, a sort of background where I've had savings in my account. So it's really just been a matter of trying to make anything from nothing and using networks, relationships to to really, really get people to build trust in me. Um, it's not been easy. A lot of deals have flopped or dropped purely for that reason of not having cash. But just just like just persevering through. But we'll touch on that later on. Yeah, we'll yeah. And, you know, I think what you said there about asking everyone would you do this in my position and them saying no it's kind of like a double-edged sword right because you you want your network to be helpful but you also can't take everyone's opinion too seriously so what kind of advice would you give to people who are maybe in that position where like one person's saying yeah yeah do rent to rent and the next person's like no i'd never do it and then one person's like yeah i'd do it like like how like how can they kind of take everyone's opinion in and then make it into something coherent for themselves I think you've got to really do a, a pros and cons list for every single person that you're speaking to that and just understanding what what their reason is for for that answer that they're giving you. So for example, I might be speaking to somebody who is doing HMOs in the exact same area that has the exact same business model as me and he might just come out and say, "Oh, the, the market's quite saturated here at the minute." Now, it's all well and good him saying, and he might be telling the truth, but sometimes you've got to think outside the box and understand why he might be saying that. Does he see you as competition? Does he think you're going to do better than him? Does he think you're going to steal his deals? Or does he generally think that, you know, I'm giving some honest advice? So you 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 can never really say it on the front end. It's, it's more a gut feeling. There were some people that said stuff to me and I'd, I'd go home and I'd be in the car and I'd be like, yeah, forget that. I'm not going to even take anything that he's just said. But there's some people that I really, really zoned in with and truly, truly understood that the emotion and, and the level of confidence that they were talking about that specific topic or that specific strategy, you really, really take it on board. Um, so I, I'd say gut feeling more than anything. Just, Just if you get a gut feeling that this person is telling you honest advice or not, yeah absolutely and i think you know if if a few people are telling you the same thing about the same thing then also i think that can help your gut feeling because you're like mm, they don't know each other they don't know me and they're all kind of saying the same thing so yeah no that's an interesting one and i know at the start it is very tricky to um to identify who's trying to help and who's maybe not trying to especially when you're early on so you settled on buy to lets and you know when you kind of chose that did you did you kind of say right i'm going to jv from day one or did you just end up having to jv because of the lack of finance or time etc yeah it was it was a lack of time um jving in ways that were really creative in the sense that not necessarily always going down the 50 50 route sometimes i would i, I saw myself quite short on some deals you know 25 percent to 75 percent uh but you've just got to understand the position that you're in at the time. And I, I, I used to look at things with a lot of humility at the, at the point, never used to have enough confidence for, for where I was, what position I was in at the start. And, and maybe so that was the right thing to do. Some other people might say otherwise, but I think what is built up now is a lot of experience and a lot of confidence that when I speak to people now and they're, 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 they're showing me opportunities, they're showing me stuff that they want to do with me because that's how, that's how I position myself. If anybody needs any help on any deals, then they'll normally bring them to me. Um, but the the other thing on top of that is, you know, it opened up opportunities into stuff like sourcing as opposed to just doing JVs. So there might have been deals that didn't stack up well enough to, to have two hands dipping out of the pot. So it was it was looking at different things from there. And, you know, sourcing has been a, a it's been a quite a rewarding thing for me. Um, Whereas JVs have also been quite um, sort of rewarding as well. So mm. it's a bit of both. Yeah, and I think it depends maybe what business or background you come from. But at the start, it can be quite 
easy to say, nah, you know what, no JVs, I'm going to do it myself, I want all the equity, but 100% of something is better than 0% of nothing. Well, no, sorry, 50% of something is, is better than 0% of nothing. So you said some interesting JVs. So um, once you said, right, I'm doing buy-to-lets, I'm going to joint venture with people, obviously, if I trust them and like them, and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, what was that the first sort of deal you did? So the first deal that I did after sort of property education was a very, very simple buy-to-let slash flip. Um, standard thing, telling everybody what you do. It was a flip that's in Oldham, runs really well as a buy-to-let as well. It's a three-bed semi-detached house that a friend of a friend was selling because he was going through repossession and he needed a really, really quick sale. He told it to me, he told me and my friend told me and, and it was about 120 grand. And the way he told me, he's like, oh, you've not got the money for that. How are you going to help him? I was like, oh, you know, there's, there's no pain in going and having a look. Let's go and see. And, you know, if we need to borrow some money to buy the house, then we'll borrow some money and we'll get it. So that was the way I convinced my mate to, to show me that. Went down, had a look, and there was so much work that was needed. However, the done up value on that street was probably about 180, 190. And it needed about 30Ks worth of work. Um, so we completely gutted that place, put it back onto the market, and it sold for 175. So we bought it for 120, spent 30K on it, um, and sold it for 175. Now, it wasn't the best in terms of profit, but we had a really good investor who was quite happy with that return. Three, four months, they went through things, and they really went on from there. Um, as opposed to as opposed to that and then forwarding on went on to another good deal which was the first hmo um which has been quite rewarding bought that again similar off market through a vendor who needed some help through a repossession it was bought for 70k spending 50k on it about 6k on the furniture and fittings everything all in the investor will probably be in about 135 the max done-up value from a bricks-and-mortar perspective is probably about 120, 125. I don't think we're going to get a commercial valuation on it purely because of the layout of the house. So the investor will probably leave close to about 45K in the deal. Annual cash flow on a reserve basis will probably be about 10.5K after mortgage payments on refinance, which probably leaves them just short of 25% return on capital employed, which is a great deal in my perspective, um, especially in Manchester where where everyone is just gunning for properties that, that want that have the potential for HMO. Mm, that's quite an interesting one. So, so the second one, where is your... So the investor is funding it. You're doing the refurb and taking a project management fee. Like where's your cut yeah. of it? Absolutely. So we, I charged a sourcing fee and a project management fee on that one. The the reason why I didn't sort of go in because my investor network wasn't the strongest then. I didn't really have as many people that I could ask. So the the very few qualified investors I had, the one person that was really really interested wasn't too sure whether I could pull off the job because it was a HMO. Um, there was an element of actually trying to prove him. I used to have sleepless nights thinking, you know what, can I actually do it? HMO is that sort of thing. And suddenly, you know, the, the value of all the networks and all the connections that I built up at the start, people that I knew that were doing HMO, suddenly it was just a matter of going through my phone book and thinking, yeah, he does HMO. Yeah, he does HMO. Yeah, he does HMO. Right. And just setting up coffees with every single person. And I was just going through the plans and every single thing, learning about HMO from scratch, learning about all the different things that we needed to do, learning about fire regulations, learning about every single aspect to the stage now where everything is, is, is doing pretty well. We're slightly over budget. We're probably going to be about four days late of where we thought. But all in all, the numbers are still stacking and everything's going well. And the investor is absolutely buzzing. Wow. And I think, you know what, this, this like kind of aligns with a lot of what I say on the podcast when I do the solo things, which is look, your network will save you money. It will save you from bad deals. It will make you money. Um, and it will, it'll support you through things like this, right? Because if you didn't put in the work beforehand, build that network, who the hell would you have called? Like, absolutely. You know, and it's, and it's, and it's quite difficult to because 
it, I can understand somebody being in a new position where they they they're meeting all these people. If let's say if you're if you're set out on a saucer, which I had the mentality of, and I was going out and speaking to people and thinking, I'm only meeting this person if they fit the ideal scenario of an investor, someone that is on the same wavelength, expects the same ROIs of deals that I'm sourcing, and scrapping off every single person else. And I lost a lot of good potential friends there in that way. And suddenly I just had a bit of a mentality shift probably three, four months on after I started to think, you know what, regardless of whoever wants to chat, you go and speak to them and find a way that you can either do business now or have some form of connection six months, 12 months, 18 months later. And that's what's happened. You suddenly go through your connections. Even if it's three people, three coffees will be so valuable when you're in a time of need than not having them at all. Yeah. I mean, look, I think these are incredibly important words and message for people to hear. Like, you know, I can vouch for it as well. The network that I've built just from, you know, like you said, having a coffee, having an Andos, even with people who are brand new in property, just because they could, you know, they have, everyone has some value to add, right? They don't have to be a hundred buy to let property investor to add value to or help you. And I think it's like, it's like paying it forward, right? If, even if you're more experienced, you meet someone who's got no properties or whatever, you, by you helping them, I think the universe somehow, some weird way, is going to kind of pay you back. So, yeah, don't be bougie with it. Just meet people. It's fun anyway as well. Like, yes, you get busy and then maybe you have to have a slight more filter as you get busier and busier. But I think you still need to put in the time to build that network. So, you and this investor, how did you find this investor? So this investor was met through social media and it was just a matter of exactly. It was just not necessarily me trying to go out and look for investors. It was more so me just documenting my journey, connecting with every single person that sent me a friend request, sending them a quick message and saying, look, you know, was there something specifically of interest that um, you added before? And just connecting with people from there. And this was somebody that I got to know, carried on speaking to, got to know as a friend, and then as soon as the deal came up, he was the first person I asked. And suddenly he's the one that took the deal with me. And how much did you make off that deal? Uh, I made 6K on that deal. Right. So for everyone listening, I always harp on about social media and connecting with people. But Seth did it and he made six grand. Yes, he put in a shitload of work. And yes, there were challenges and mistakes and etc. But let's look at it top level. Social media found him someone to buy a deal off him pay him a sourcing fee and a project management fee and the deal he just described let's be honest i wouldn't leave in 45k say if i don't think you would either no um, but there are people who who have millions and and you know whatever and 45k is nothing to them and i think i think another thing as well just to just to add on that 45k touch is that we we often hear these big fancy deals of no money left in and and things like that not everybody has the same expectations that we have i know people out there that are looking for deals that achieve six percent yields seven percent yields you know and that's a doddle in my area i can find you something that's seven percent yield the asking price even over asking price on some properties and it's just really zoning in on what that person wants what metric are they after are they after yield or are they after return on capital employed and truly understanding how your investment stack and what you can offer them because then you speak back with confidence when they say to you you know what i'm after 15 percent yield and you'll be like you know what that's not actually achievable instead of me taking that and, and running away but i'll touch on that later yeah no absolutely i think knowing what your investor wants whether it's an angel investor or in your case uh, someone purchasing a deal is so so important so you had that first deal with your mate and then you had the second hmo uh and that's all complete now and let out? No, the HMO is is undergoing development now, as we speak. Um, it's about a week away from being finished with the builders. Furniture is being delivered end of next week. So, yeah, that's in a very, very exciting stage. And, you know, I, I walk in that place and, and think, you know, what my progression has, has been through this building. Learning The amount of learning I've done on that project has been unreal. But I'm fully, fully confident that come the next one, I'll be able to do that with my eyes closed. If anything, plan it much, much better from the starting point. Well, fantastic. And, and you said it was four days late and slightly over budget, right? So I think, 
I mean, when you said that, I didn't even flinch. I was like, yeah, standard. Because it happens, right? <laughs> like, it Absolutely. always, especially with HMOs and like maybe the older, it always happens. And I think what you've said there is I've learned from it and I can do the next one with my eyes closed. That just shows me that, that those four days is your cost of education. That extra money is your cost of education. Now, for people listening, can you tell us why it cost more and why it was delayed so we can understand like what kind of things yeah. can go wrong? course so from a building perspective the property is three floors and it's only a four bed hml so suddenly the first thing that comes to mind is you know you don't need planning because uh, we're in a non-article four area and you don't need a license but one thing that that quite often you forget is that it needs an upgraded fire alarm system now the upgraded fire alarm system sort of set me back about 1500 pounds i think it was yeah it was about 1500 pounds and i was i was quite proudfully you know getting through the project you know three four weeks in thinking everything's on budget no nothing's nothing's been uncovered and then boom that came took me down a little bit but just accepted it on the chin and thought you know what that's what contingencies are for um so yeah it was mainly the fire alarm system um, small little things, lack of experience in terms of furniture, that's put us slightly over. But I'm very, very confident that we're investing in the furniture so that it makes things much easier in a year's time, two years' time. We won't need to replace these things as often. But yeah, that's really been it. But but these are these are things that I'll take for the next deal. And we have done for this deal that we're buying now um, and where we're getting the keys hopefully on Friday. But the, the tweaks in, in, in actually appraising the deal have been made so that we're much more confident that we, we shouldn't be over budget for the same reasons. Yeah. And how did you tell your investor that? So at the starting point, when I did the appraisal, I had in a 10% contingency on the refer, which is 5k. Um, all in all, we're about 3k over. So we're not, we're not over the contingency. We're within contingency. The main thing that I have with myself is I talk a lot. I'm very, very communicative um, with my investor. We used to speak every other day. Once a week, I normally used to give him his update. In that once a week, he was aware of issues that could potentially arise in the future and issues that haven't arose, but we're, we, we're about to be hit with a bill on for. So there were, there were upsides on things, but then there were also downsides on things that we, we actually made provisions for, but didn't actually come out. Some issues that we, we sort of preempted, but didn't. So the one thing that I, that I did quite well was we over-spec the quote, and then we stripped back as we realized things, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's an interesting idea. And then, you know, this was your second property you've ever worked on, right? Yeah, first HMO, second property. Okay, so your first HMO was your second property you worked on for someone else, with someone else's money. So this is, there's a lot of pressure here, right? Like, just naturally. So the first question is, when it comes to refurbs, a lot of people, including like a lot of deal sources, struggle to price things accurately. How, and and I'm talking about they struggle on like a buy-to-let to price things how did you sort of how did you price up 50 grand's worth of stuff on a type of house you'd never worked on before and only being your second house so again most of these came back from the network um speaking to other investors going through numbers with them whenever it, you know suddenly if somebody's got a project that you know that is in your local area and i was i was spotting it the first question wasn't necessarily how can we go for a coffee it was more so can we can I come and see your project? Can we talk through things? And suddenly I always had a work in progress, a little sort of checklist that was always being made in the background. And every investor that I would meet, I would ask them three, four questions that would that would tick off some things that I needed on my checklist. You, the one thing as well when it comes to HMO refurbs that, that is quite good is that you normally I normally appraise deals based on a cost per bedroom. You either have a cost per bedroom with an ensuite or a cost per bedroom with a shared bathroom. So when it comes to a cost of bedroom with an ensuite, anywhere between 12.5K to 15K. Cost for a bedroom with a shared bathroom, I'd just presume 10 grand for that bedroom. And really just high level, really, really high level. 
if anything sort of deviates from that, one, if it's too cheap, is the guy quoting you right? If it's too expensive, what are you paying for? Are you paying because he's really busy? Or are you paying because he's got some really, really high quality work? So I went in 12.5K. This was after speaking to probably 15 to 20 different HMO investors based on how they did their appraisals. And then went down and really, and then sort of asked five builders. Five builders came down, quoted for the works. They give me a detailed breakdown of everything from what it was. And then it was, you know, then it late night started there. It was studying these quotes, going through every single bit. Oh, wait a second. Builder number three has missed out what builder number one has quoted for. Okay, let me just carry that cost over so I can compare them like for like. And then suddenly a, a speck of works was created. And then all of a sudden I had costs for every single line, everything that we were expecting. The builder that I chose was slightly more expensive on his bathroom. So we managed to negotiate him down based on that by showing him that we had quotes from four other builders. And we really just sort of just knuckled down and carried on from there. But that's pretty much it. There's no real like big science. As long as you, you I'm, I'm confident enough to share exactly how I come to that number. As long as a deal sourcer can share quite confidently what they're doing, then that's it. From a buy to let perspective, I've got this little mini checklist of things that I just just tick in essence. What can go wrong at the front of a property? What can go wrong from the back of the property? What can go wrong in a reception room, in a kitchen, in a bedroom, in the stairs and landing? And just ticking them. There's no numbers on there. There's no nothing. It's just a very, very easy way to communicate with a builder just so that they can ultimately see what they need to quote you on. And you just assume a rough thing. So when I speak to a builder, I say, just imagine you standard two up, two down in that area, mate. And this is what I need doing. Give us a rough quote. I don't want to waste your time to you for you to come down and have a look. And all it takes is a few of them at the start. And suddenly you get an idea of how many things, how much each thing is worth. And then you just build a little calculator from there. You go from that, add a contingency on, and Ted, you can't really go much more wrong from that. You know what, I, I agree with you, man. I think I've I've done the same thing. I looked at deal sourcer packs, I asked local investors, I, I spoke to some builders, I I kind of ran it past various people and also looked at Facebook and said, Okay, how much is people spending on, on their um on their refurbs kind of line for line? And I think I mean I mean nowadays I've kind of like you got it down to a T, but sometimes I will literally on the spreadsheet just say, hmm, I'm going to chuck in an extra £500 just for jokes because I know that I'm going to change my mind and I'm going to want marble effect everywhere, not just on half the wall. So let me chuck in 500 quid here. And I'm like, mm, what if we potentially, you know, this goes wrong like it did before? Chuck in a 200 quid here. So I have mm. like the refurb cost. I have me adding a bit just because I know what I'm like with my taste and how I want it to look. And then I have a (laughs) contingency. So I think everyone kind of also develops their own little style and has the self-awareness of saying, you know what, I I think I'm going to probably want something different once I see it go up or something like that, which is not the best thing. But when you've got a good build team, it's pretty cool. And you know, I think to summarize what you did, you said there was no science to it, but I think the real kind of science or art is just hard work, right? That's what absolutely, you did. Absolutely. Um, I think you, you have to do what you did. And, and yeah, you could ask someone for an automatic list and that's cool. That's great. But when you do it yourself, you really internalize. And then, you know, can you kind of go on viewings and you're like, okay, rewire up two and a half, this, yep, that much, that much. And you just, you walk out there ready to offer because you know, what the refurb roughly is going to cost. Okay, so um, you did this second deal on this HMO. You were the deal sourcer and the project manager. That obviously went or is going really well. Did you do anything after this deal or is that the latest deal? So we've got the third deal that's not been started. It's still, we're hoping to exchange on Wednesday for that one. Um, that's with another investor. And then again, not a JV. This is a deal sourced and project managed um similar style hmo but it's a three bed hmo a smaller one but we're trying to give three really big rooms as opposed to 
for squashed single bedrooms. So when I say big rooms, I'm talking 12 square meter rooms with three square meter on suites. So we're talking, you know, the bee's knees really in the area. Um, massive potential. We've got new build houses that are going literally behind it. I'm expecting a GDV of 110 new build houses that are three beds as well that are going on for one, two, five. If anything, the comparables are going to push up over the next couple of years. So the, the investor was really, really bought into the idea of values going up in that area and people developing within that area. Um, and it's a street away from where the existing HMO is. So I know the area works. And as well, it's it's timing really well so that as soon as my build, my builders sort of get off this first project that we've got the first HMO, they'll be able to move on to the next one quite quite quickly and easily. And what you what's the investor buying it for? How much? So the investor is buying this one for seventy five. Okay, and is it in quite a bad state or? No, not necessarily. We probably don't need to take as much plaster off the walls as we need to. There's a little bit of damp on some of the some of the walls. Um, not knocking through as many walls as we needed to on the first one. Not doing any work on the exterior like we're doing. Like we had to get the, the first one rendered at the back. Um, we're doing some work on, on putting some concrete down. Not really getting on from anything from there. Whereas the first one, we're probably expecting to pay about 35k on that. Oh, on this current one? Yeah. Interesting. Okay. And then you know what? A three-bed HMO is, is going to really perk up some of the listeners because... That's very different to what most do, right? Um, and, and it's an interesting one because you are creating, I mean, 12, 12 square meters is, is big uh, and three by three is also really big. What? So, okay, so let's say in your area, what does a standard double ensuite, you know, not kind of nice HMO room rent out for is about 500 a month? Probably a little bit less. You're probably talking about 110 pound a week, which works out to about 475 ish. 475. And how much are your super rooms going to rent out for? I'm expecting to market them for about 525 and try and push rents up slowly. Okay. And so, yes, you're getting 50 quid more a month per room across three beds. That's 150 quid more. Like, so what will it monthly, what will it profit your investor? So the investor will probably get close to about 750. Yeah, cash flow. I mean, that's that's pretty good for a, what people most people would consider like not a HMO because there's three people. But that's that's quite interesting. And why? I mean, why don't you make them into like self-contained flats or studios and then push the rent up more? Or is there not enough room inside? Uh, like, there's not enough. There's not enough room. And secondly, we're really trying to manage the exit on this one because. This house can easily be changed back into a three-bedroom house very, very easily um, by literally knocking one of the one of the bedrooms that we're making into a, a big double ensuite, knocking that through, creating a small bathroom again, the downstairs bedroom, converting that back into a living room, and Bob's your uncle suddenly we can put it back onto the market for a, as a as a newly renovated three-bed HML or not three, just a three-bed terraced house um, with not a lot of work. Which is probably why we're we're not making four small rooms. Now that's interesting again because you said you're managing the exit. Can you tell the listeners why it's important to have to manage the exits of any property investment? Yeah, absolutely. Again, this is this is a lesson that I've learned from someone that I spoke to on, on some of the coffees that I used to go to when I was learning about HML. And the one thing he told me was that we don't know how well the HMO market is going to continue going on. There's obviously new developments about council tax funding and different things that are coming out to the public that in essence could potentially kill the market or could kill the profit margins and suddenly not make all that effort worth it than just going for a standard buy to let. So the investor was quite conscious of that. One thing that we've done on this one is to make sure that should the HMO market collapse in the area, we can very quickly switch it back to a house, put it on to rent, or even just sell it and, and take the cash and go. And and the the GDVs that I normally appraise to 
are normally four bricks and mortar, three, you know, however many bedrooms there are for normal three bedroom houses in the area. So whenever I talk sort of numbers with people, they normally aren't as high as they possibly perform, but that's just me making sure that I have appraised the deal to death. Hmm. That's interesting. And I think, you know, it's, it's important, like every, well, I think every sort of property strategy is vulnerable to some change, to some force out of our control, you know, government trying to tax us more, even though we're helping the situation that they don't help, etc, etc. So I think buy to let is probably the least riskiest, most boring, most vanilla strategy there is. And that's why I love it. Uh, and then, of course, other strategies vary in the kind of risk. But what you're saying that everyone really needs to especially when you're starting out, right? Like have have three, four exits for each property, right? For my buy-to-lets, I have four exits every single time. And investors, when they want to fund your deals and even when they're buying deals, they're going to ask, okay, what if we can't get a remortgage on the same amount? What if we can't sell it uh, um, with an agent? What if this, right? So you have to be prepared um, just like Seth is with his investments. So you're sourcing deals but how are you sourcing them? How are you finding these properties? Estate agents, mainly. Um, estate agents and word of mouth. I haven't, I'm doing a little bit of direct to render letters now for, for, for some bigger stuff, derelict commercial sites, um, trying to sort of delve into that area. Never sort of been on a course, but spoken to enough people to give me a good enough idea to, to make a start. Um, never posted leaflets and just networked like mad with estate agents. Found two or three on the scattergun approach, so probably approached 10 to 15. Found two or three that were really responsive. On the first call, someone gave me an off-market portfolio and that's it. You, you know, whoever you get responses from, they're going to be your friends. Instead of then going and trying and tackle all 10 15 again you put all eggs in those two or three and just just become friends with them and suddenly all of a sudden they know exactly what you do to the stage now where an estate agent will call me or one of these three estate agents will call me and say Seth do you think you can find a buyer for this as opposed to you know them sending me a deal and thinking I'm the investor it's just being open and honest with them and I'll tell them look some stuff I'll buy some stuff I'll buy with an investor, but some stuff I'll just introduce you to people. And they're more than happy for that. And the one one other good way, Tej, that I'd also say, just for the listeners, a good way to build networks is as you find direct vendor leads on your endeavors or your marketing or whatever, if something doesn't stack for you and it's not on the market, give it to the estate agent that's giving you deals and let them try and sell that property for them. And suddenly the estate agent will think, oh crap, I'm not just giving him business, he's giving me business as well. And it just takes, you just fly up the list of that black book. Yeah, and I, you know what, that is, I saw someone say that on Facebook somewhere, that is so important because I think naturally if we get a deal, someone comes to us and it's a really nice house and they want full asking, we're going to be like, oh, that's not really my market. But you have friends over in an estate agency who would be like, What? I will, you know, give me that property, I'll sell it. So definitely work that relationship, right? Now, we've kind of spoken about your successes so far and obviously a few challenges. But before we spoke on air, you mentioned you had like a few deals kind of fall out of bed at different stages and some that sounded pretty, pretty big, big, pretty chunky. So can you maybe talk us through some of the, I don't know, some of the rejections or some of the failures that you've had with these deals? Yeah, of course. I'll talk you through the biggest one. This this one would have been a game changer. Um, again, sourced through a letter, got a response on my first letter to this property. It was a big pub. Um, I've spoken to a number of people about this pub and uh, just getting advice and stuff like that. Went in, just went in to try and draw a floor plan and, and work out how much floor space I had. And suddenly, you know, within five minutes, it's like, I'm going to be here for four hours. This place is that big. Um, it's an old pub with two floors above that are currently converted to residential that the homeowner is currently living in with his family, where the ground floor pub is completely derelict and vacant. Um, 
so the the interesting about interesting thing about this deal is that the the homeowner was quite proud about owning this. You know, you get a real sense of sense of pride in terms of we own a pub, we own this building. This is our commercial building, which is you know I was I was quite passionate with them for what they they overpaid on that a number of years ago and and thought that they could still recover some funds and not make a, a juicy profit for themselves, which us as property investors come across that challenge all the time. You know, vendors asking for too much, vendors having unrealistic expectations, not really understanding how a deal stacks, um, sort of thing. I went through, spoke through with the different people and just suddenly came up with the idea, like, you know, as I was offering for the property, so the vendor was asking for 300 grand, I could only make it stack at 100K. And I was like, how am I going to have this conversation because I need to give them closure. You know what I mean? Just explained it to them so nicely, so passionately, hoping, you know, just, you know, ready for them to absolutely just start um, swearing, thinking, why have you wasted my time and that sort of thing. But funny enough, he was, he was quite nice about it. He rejected quite nicely, didn't do it abruptly. And then suddenly, I don't know where it came from, just on the spot, I just said, would you be interested in doing it together? And he was like, yeah, of course I will. Absolutely. Less, less, less. I was like, okay, no problem. I'm, I'm busy for the next few weeks. Um, but let's get, let's get a date in the diary in the next two, three weeks. Say, he's like, oh no, Seth, you, you know, I'd really like this idea. Let's do something together. You know, I ideally don't want to sell the place. Let's meet this weekend. I was like, I was like, in my head, I was like, I'm pretty stacked out. I just said yes. I was like, don't worry, I'll cancel. In my head, I was like, I'll cancel something. I'll come down. We'll have a chat. And suddenly now I've got three days to try and come up with a proposal as to what I can offer him. Uh, and, uh, you know, just trying to look at every single strategy that was from there. So the, the strategy that I came up with was the fact that this property was owned by the vendor. We would create a limited company. Now, again, we, the deal didn't get far enough for me to, to realize whether this is possible. But there's people, the accountants and people that I spoke to said there was no issues. Um, so I'm not giving any advice or any professional advice or whatever, but the property would then get transferred into a limited company that me and the vendor would co-own. I would raise a finance, whether it was through angels or bridging to do the development. The property would then get converted to a 15 bedroom HMO with en suites in every single room. We had four different exits, one to sell it to a international investor on a yield base. The second was HMO for just blue collar workers. The third was professional HMO, you know, going all the way to the top. And the last thing was social housing, giving it to a social housing provider, then providing a guaranteed rent and, and us just really just having a passive income for anywhere between five to 10 years. So we went through, did a rough costing, realized in these numbers that the, the deal would in essence be that the property would go into the company on the form of a direct loan. When we refinance, we pay back the vendors. We would have close to 150k of equity in the property that we wouldn't pull out of the property. We would leave in there um, to assist us when it when it came to the form of you know from a cash flow perspective. So the the shared equity was probably about 75k. That I would make from my for myself from nothing and from a cash flow perspective about fifteen hundred pounds, and I wouldn't have to put a single penny into the deal. He was willing to to pay for the first tranche of development finance if we needed that, all the legal fees, the architect fees. He was more than welcome to to go ahead with it. And and at this stage, it was a pinch me moment. You know, one of them is it, is this too good to be true sort of things. Carried on going, carried on going, got to the stage, spoke to a few people, and they said, look, you need to get something in writing here or else this could go to bed uh, or this could fall down. So I was like, okay. So drafted a really, really basic header terms agreement, went down, gave it to him. He was fine with it. And then a week later, he called me in for a, viewing, um, for a, for a meeting, went down, thinking everything was going to be signed. And he said, look, Seth, I've got bad news. Unfortunately, mum and dad have... Uh, I'm not really happy with the idea of giving up half of the property, um, which was unfortunate because the end property would be a completely different building. Like we're talking almost 250 grand worth of renovation cost here um, to do this place up. 
so yeah, that deal fell to bed. Um, would have been an absolute game changer. Probably would have meant the notice to work. Probably would have gone in. Um, and suddenly there we go. But you know, look, I've got you know, coming back from it now, I, I probably had two days of of just de- not depression, but just thinking, what the hell is the point? Like, you know, have I got to go and grind out for another deal like this again or whatever? Bloody blah, blah, blah. Then I looked at the positives and I spoke to somebody. I got that deal on my third letter of a batch of 10, which almost went through. Suddenly I had, I had about another 40 deals that I sent letters out to and I played the numbers game and thought, you know, if something comes up, something comes up from there and all of a sudden, you know, we'll get something. We continue on. It's just picking the positives. A friend of the podcast, actually, uh, Sonny Mahal, I spoke to him a number of times, um, who's quite big on mindset and suddenly you know, my mindset completely changed. I had to add a little bit more clarity on about what I was doing this all for, created a vision board, um, just small little basic things that have really pulled me through to the stage now where I've probably got close to about six deals that are progressing to negotiation stage where I think more than likely three of them JVs will probably get signed over the line in the next five to six months. Um, so I'm in a very, very comfortable place. <laughs> Wow. And you know what? That's a, there's lessons in that story. And, you know, when you said you had the two days of kind of feeling down, like that is normal. And for everyone listening, it is so, so normal. Um, You, you know, it's easy to go on social media and look at, I don't know, someone shouting a lot or the Americans shouting a lot and thinking, oh my God, like it went wrong. I'm supposed to just boo, chest out, power on. And look, sometimes you can do that. Like, you know, sometimes you can, of course, but you know, when it's a deal as big as this, um, especially early on, you're thinking, yo, I've, you know, I'm quids in. This is this is incredible for the portfolio and for the results and for the success to fall out, especially when <sighs> over something so dumb, you know, like something the vendor should have checked uh, like beforehand is so annoying because you're like, but what could I have done different? And it's like, well, sometimes, sometimes you couldn't have done anything different, right? Like sometimes the same thing can happen and there'll be no warning signs. So it's just one of those things you have to, yeah, kind of get through, right? The obstacle is the way. And then, as you just said, you've got six more deals, three of which potentially will, will go through. So, you know, that door closed, these doors opened. And again, you said six, but you said three may go through. And again, this is important for people listening, right? Anyone new in property, you need to have an ex- maybe an, an expectation ratio that's quite low. I mean, I've put in 90 offers. I've, and I've had one, two, I've had uh, three accepted, four accepted. Um, I've been to auction three times. I've bid on 30 properties and I've only bought two. Uh, So you can just imagine that the the time and money that me and Seth have wasted, not wasted, but we've spent, we've, we've used on things that have come to no fruition. But as Seth said, He's got more deals coming up, and if they fall through... Really funny stat. The first deal, that the first HMO, in terms of... I I did a rough, rough sort of number count of the number of hours of learning to that stage that I made. So that's meeting with builders, meeting with the vendor, meeting with um, investors, meeting with other investors to try and learn about HMO. And And that 6K worked out to about just under £6 an hour. And would I pay myself six pound an hour to do a job? Probably not. But it's just one of those things that, without it, you you can't become more efficient later on. And yeah. like the numbers game. Yeah, and I think it, it's good you shared that stat again because I think one mindset will say, "Whoa, that's less than working at I don't know McDonald's or, or something like that." Um, I'm not going to do that. But then one mindset, which I think you need to succeed in this game in any business, would say, "Oh." Well, I made money and I learned a lot. Um, it's a win-win. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, because it is a win-win. I think, you know, the, the kind of hustle that you have in you, I think you would have taken three pound an hour. You would have, because of what you're going to learn from it, right? And that's the kind of mindset that we need to succeed, um, especially at the start when we we don't know things, right? Uh, so when it comes to, like, your your future plans... 
what I don't know. So we're we're kind of recording this in when are we? We're like mid late September twenty nineteen. What is your sort of like? What do you want to have achieved by I don't know. Let's say the end of the year in the next sort of three four months. By the end of the year, I'd probably want my third project done, uh, which is probably more than achievable, and I'd probably want my fourth one lined up. Looking forward to next year, I'm an accountant. I'm hoping to have my chartered qualification completed by mid next year. And then on top of that, the year after that, probably be in a position to to think about potentially trying to do this full time um, and really give this a good go. So very realistic targets, but targets that need a lot of grind, a lot of a lot of hard work. Yeah. And you mentioned you're, you're obviously you're still working as an accountant. I, I forgot. Um, like, what are some tips for people who are employed, whether they enjoy their, their job or not? But more importantly, how can they balance a nine to five, five days a week with trying to build some type of property business? So one activity that I would I would I would really, really say is is try and work some numbers based on what outputs you want to achieve and then numbers on how much effort you want to take on from that. So let's talk rough numbers. Let's say for every deal, you need to put 15 offers in for argument's sake. I know it's a lot more, but let's say 15 offers. And then for every 15 offers, you need to find five. For, for one offer, you need to find five deals on, uh, or you need to go to five viewings or two viewings or three viewings, however it might be for that person. From every viewing you go, you might appraise 10 deals on right move so you we work the numbers back and then try and think right okay in one year i want to do three deals so you times all of that by three and work it back and think right okay i need to be looking at let's say 600 right move listings a year for argument's sake if that's how much it is you divide that output by number of months you divide that output by number of weeks by number of days and you find a daily target or a weekly target however it much be then the next thing is make sure that your life, well, it's easy for me because I'm not quite like that, especially with work, is that your life is on your calendar. And it really allows you to balance your time much easily when it's visual in front of you, whether that's a diary in a book or whether that's using your phone or using a laptop, however it might be. For me, it was quite key. And it, it's still quite difficult, to be fair, um, where I probably prioritize my property sometimes more than my family. Um and get a lot of repercussions as a result and then prioritize my family over property. And then I suffer repercussions from deals slipping, deals being sold and right move when I've not even saw them, um, mess ups by the builder because I've not been there in the last few days to go and have a look at what he's doing. Um, small little things like that, but it's finding a balance. But the calendar has allowed me to find my balance to the stage now where I know for two hours of a day, I'm doing property work. So I'll get back from work. I'll have some calls with other investors, whether it's on the drive home, whether it's just as I get home, six o'clock, I switch off, spend some time with the family, eight, half eight, nine o'clock sometimes, probably even later sometimes, I'll just jump into property mode. And then I'm there on my laptop till two, three in the morning. And just grinding, just constantly grinding, getting yourself into the habit. Because, you know, as soon as you know the reasons why, which is why I went mentioned vision boards and stuff like that. It's, you know, everything just makes sense. If, if, if you can't, if you've visually put something on a wall and it's still not motivating you, do those goals on the wall make, are they powerful enough? Have you really thought that through properly? If you ever struggle for motivation, even after doing that task, I'd probably look at doing it again and setting yourself some goals that are, are, are much more specific to you. Mm. I like that. And what is your why? My why is my family. And my biggest why is, I, like, you know, I was blessed with a beautiful baby boy three months ago. And it's completely changed my reason why much more. But more so, my initial reason why is to get my mum out of work so that she never has to work a day of her life again. And she can work by choice as opposed to work for necessity. That's the first why. And then the second is just to give my son the opportunities that I never had as a young lad. Mm, I like it. No, it's very meaningful. And yet, like, people need a why. And I think the deeper 
and more non-materialistic it is, the kind of stronger it can be and the more it will push you through things, right? So we've reached almost the end of the podcast. I have a few questions left, but before I do, I think, you know, what you said there about when I said, how do you balance both? And you said, you know, essentially what you said again was hard work. Like you said it in, in a certain way, but you were saying, yeah, I was, you know, I got in trouble with family. I missed certain things. I was up till two, three AM. And like, this is just the truth. Like no matter how efficient you work, how many VAs you have, like at the start, especially you're going to be working late. You're going to get a little less sleep. You're going to miss things. And that's, that's just a sacrifice you make now for the hopefully, you know, 10, 20, 30, 50 years of like doing whatever you want and, and being free. Uh, so is there like a bit of technology or an app or a resource that you just can't live without that makes your life easier? Yeah, my my to-do list. I use an app called Things on Apple and it's an, it's an Apple only app. The, the, other, the other app that I used to use was Wonderlist absolutely powerful and the don't get me wrong a to-do list is a to-do list until you start putting things in there and the one thing i would say is you one thing i did sorry is i try and came up with all the repeat activities that i needed to do to be successful in what i wanted to achieve so that was every goal going down knuckling it down and thinking right what daily activities what weekly activities how many viewings how many times did i need to do something if it was looking at right move okay i've got a week i've got a weekly task to 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 download new listings off right move add them to my pipeline check my pipeline for properties that are must views based on the numbers that i can do desktop analysis for the ones that have been sold checking them every week to make sure that they haven't dropped back into um back onto the market the ones that have uh, removed but i've made an offer on checking what like sort of checking them three months later to see what they actually sold for on house prices and against what my offer was to see if you know was it was it most likely going to be a home buyer or was it another investor and did i miss out by by a couple of k um some really good lessons that i went there and i, I looked at three that i missed really really closely and went through my notes and went through the pictures for that property and realized there were some bits that I probably were expecting to refer but I probably didn't need to and as a result of that I lost the deal so small little things like that but what I'm saying what I'm getting to is um, repeat activities just need to be shoved in there and at the start of the day I normally do it from the evening I plan my next day based on what comes up in my to-do list for that next day I don't do it any other way. There's there's so many things that come up in your head, but the, the key for me is getting everything out of my head. And then I decide on that day, what are my priorities? And I just shove things to the next day. Just forget about them. Shove them to the next day, shove them to the next day. And suddenly you've got a list of 10 things that you need to do. And those are the 10 things that I go absolutely hard on that day. And, you know, the results, the results come through slowly, probably more slower than some, but you know what? It, it's more personal to you. As long as the results are coming better than what they were last week or the week before, then uh, then that's a job well done. Amazing. And you know, I think, again, everything you're saying is working hard and working hard on the right things, which are going to, you know, with your daily, weekly, monthly goals and targets that you're saying, things that, that are actually going to push you in the direction of where you want to go and and like we said at the beginning that can take some you know time some experimenting some networking to actually understand where do i want to go with which strategy but your goal setting your vision boards your why all really really add to that so i think for everyone listening for me what i'm what i'm getting from from safe and actually what i didn't know even though we talk you know regularly I, i didn't actually know this is how hard you're working behind the scenes to achieve what you are achieving and what you want to achieve and I think it's a good sort of um I think it's nice for people to hear this because we're all probably working this hard we're all hustling and we're all at different stages of you know are we just around the corner from deals are we have we just got some exchanged are we months away like it's nice to hear that you're doing it too I'm doing it too and and others are too so before we finish I have a quick fire round so this is uh three by three questions just like Quick fire, single answer questions, answers. You ready? Go for it. What are the biggest three mistakes that you have made in property? 
First one is value yourself. Never sell yourself too short. Second one, don't spend time on stupid stuff. Make sure that they're contributing to the goal that you want to achieve. And then the third one, I guess it's trying to do anything and everything and not zoning in on a specific aspect. I love it. And your top three tips for people who are new in property? Yeah, set yourselves three priorities for the week. That's going back to the activity thing. Break it down. What three things do you need to do every single week? And as long as you achieve them, job well done. Second one, don't network for the money. Network to make friends. Third one is find a strategy of thing, a strategy that you want to work on and you can only really quit on it after six months of actually doing it. Interesting. I like that one. And then I think we kind of covered this before, but what are your top sort of three goals for the future? And this could be personal, could be fitness, could be anything. Okay. So mainly, so the first one is to either source, control, or project manage 100 properties. 100 properties, 100 units, whatever you want to make it, but 100 properties in my eyes at the minute. The second is to create, so my company is called Pennine Investments, but I want to create the Pennine Group which is a group of smaller companies that are related to property and also, you know, small startups, which is a big passion of mine. And then the last one is to make my whole family in my house, my brothers, my sisters, my missus, my mum, my dad, all financially free. I love that. And the last one, I like the last one as well. It's very meaningful. So, Seth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I think there's a lot of value here. This is going to be it's going to be a good podcast. I can tell. I can tell. I can see the listeners just jumping up on this one. Um, if people want to get a hold of you or they want to follow your journey, uh, what's the best way for them to do it? Best way is probably Instagram. I'm big on Instagram. Instagram is my favorite thing at the minute. Um, and Facebook. Just Seth Rehan on Instagram. S-A-I-F-R-E-H-A-N. It's probably the easiest way. But I'm sure Ted, you'll probably tag them in. Yes, sir. I will tag them in. Well, look, all that's left for me to do is say thank you very much, Seth. Thank you very much for having me on, buddy. If you like this podcast, connect with Tej on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube for more great content.